Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. Today we're going to continue our series exploring the history of witchcraft, with a particular focus on its overlap with the treatment of women generally. We've already explored in some detail the social, political, and literary context which informed the popular idea of the witch. As we have found, there is perhaps a false idea that the witch as we know it was an older and more universal symbol than it perhaps was. Forms of witchcraft, kinds of magical practitioners, and references to magic of all kinds do date back far into antiquity, but they do not fully explain the fairly rigid concept we have in mind when we think of a witch. After all, as Brian Levack summarises in The Witch Hunt in Early Modern Europe, the mere belief in the reality of the magic that witches practised was not capable of sustaining the systematic prosecution and execution of large numbers of witches. So the question is, so what else was sustaining it? So even after the symbol of the witch has been given new life and new purposes in the 20th century and beyond, there is a gulf between the contextual influences and how they combine and the figure of the witch as persecuted in the trials. As touched on last week, there was a methodical process by which the morally ambiguous witch was transformed into the satanic witch or demonic witch, a figure to be feared and hunted down. And as already touched on again, the supporting and surviving court records, pamphlets and papal bulls all also serve to create the mythos surrounding the witch, imbue it with strong emotion and spread it like a rash through larger and larger communities even as they seemingly sought to eradicate their menace. In order for this fervour to be maintained, the idea must spread that witches were a danger to society at large. They had rejected the predominant Christianity and acted conspiratorially to bring to an end all that people held dear. So today we are going to be exploring the European witch trials, largely through the lens of the surviving records around them. So we will have to be brief, by necessity as the trials were, expansive, at times very explosive, often quite sporadically documented, but we will be exploring the broad similarities between some of the trials and tracking the evolution of the trial structure to become the machine for mass-sanctioned murder as it was to become at its height in the 17th century. This discussion once again could not have been made without the excellent The Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present by Ronald Hutton, as well as Emotions in the History of Witchcraft, which explores witchcraft from the viewpoint of the performative and often social dimensions of the strong emotions at the heart of these community spectacles. The Penguin Book of Witches has also been great help in exploring some of the primary sources informing and feeding into this evolving idea of the satanic witch on trial. But without further ado, let's get on with it. So 
So the first thing to note about the European witch trials is their startling consistency almost from the outset. The somewhat rigid pattern to the trials does not gel with the idea of the witch as a patchwork of different contextual elements, a kind of organic compound between all of these literary and social elements, folklore all blending to one. More, the idea of the witch is so specific that it implies some outside guiding hand. It implies some agency in perpetuating this idea of the witch in this specific way. And the fact of these trials spreading like a fire through Europe supports this idea that the flames of this kind of hatred were deliberately fed and fanned for a reason. So the Valais witch trials, 1428 to 1447, are generally believed to be the earliest systematic witch hunts as we would know it, and they were a widespread, viral and lengthy burst of violence hinging on a key social element, the involvement of whole communities in righting some of the wrongs dealt to them, building on a recent past of religious persecution and a politically fragmented landscape. Starting in the Duchy of Savoy in modern-day southeastern France and Switzerland, the trials lasted a number of years and were at their most furious and organised for around eight of these years. And they spread like a rash first through French-speaking areas and into German-speaking areas and into the Alps region, a region singularly rich in ousted heretics. Due to this, it resulted in numerous trials for heresy and often the overlap between trials for heresy and witch trials were pretty much one and the same. Now, the true death toll of these witch trials will likely never be known, but at least 367 people are known to have lost their lives, although many names were simply not noted down for reasons which will become clear. Now, the surviving account we have is from Clark and Chronicler, Johannes Frund, and I struggle to find his account in translation because it is in German, but nevertheless it is thanks to his account primarily that we know what we know about these trials. So a statement issued in 1428, when all of Valais was swept up in accusations of witchcraft, perhaps in an attempt to limit the madness presumed to be only affecting a few individuals, issued guidance on the correct way of holding a witch trial, and the correct way hinged on the burden of the popular vote, i.e. the public talk or slander of three or four neighbours, or even three or four previously convicted peoples. This accusation was enough to land one as being labelled a witch. So if mere belief in witchcraft was not enough to explain this explosion of hate. An explicit call for social judgment definitely goes some way to explain it. Because the burning of witches had occurred sporadically in Switzerland's past, but the victims were usually limited to one or two individuals. After all, proving the unnatural or the paranormal is by definition outside of the bounds of judicial process. This time, however, to be condemned, at least three of your neighbours had to accuse you of being a witch, and once accused, 
you would either confess to these charges or be made to confess under torture. The popular accusation in and of itself was all the evidence needed to convict. So this community-wide aspect led to, predictably, poorer, less well-liked and influential individuals being accused. So in the beginning, the accused were predominantly peasant men, but as time went on, the figure became less discriminant of gender. But still, it was in large part the poor and the powerless who were burned to death or beheaded at accusation of their peers and with no way of proving their innocence. For many, their lowly status meant their deaths lie somewhere in the estimate of best guesses. Some were tortured to death without confession and therefore without trial, and many others confessed to any charges offered them in the hope of sparing their lives. Others confessed to ruining harvests, ruining grains, spoiling meat, any kind of natural hardship that may strike indiscriminately now had an outlet and a way by which societies, particularly poorer ones, could take control of their lives, often steered by the whims and fancies of their more powerful, influential and wealthy leaders. The accused were given all manner of broad powers, to steal wine, to transfer illness to others, cannibalise children, meet with Satan to do their bidding, any kind of indiscriminate bad fortune could be levelled against a poor victim and with enough support of your community, the feeling of purging the sight of society's ills, as well as perhaps getting rid of someone less liked in the community, was enacted through these witch trials. And it was this social aspect which would really get the hunts going in earnest in Europe. These trials would go on to become the blueprint on which others were built on and the apparatus of systematic abuse honed at each stage. Now, 1486, as we will probably know by now, would bring the publication of the infamous Malaeus Maleficarum by Heinrich Kramer, second only to the Bible as the most widely available book in circulation at this time. The book, usually translated as The Hammer of Witches, gave not only instructions on how to find and try witches, but underlined again and again the link between women's natural weakness to evil and their ease at being seduced by Satan himself. What's more, it explicitly labelled witchcraft as heresy, an association which was present in the Valet trials, but was not explicitly backed up by any popular text. The Malaeus Malificarum blurred the line between religious intolerance and social intolerance, showing how easily and how far they could be entangled. Many scholars have suggested that the European witch trials were predicated at least partly on the publication of this text, and on this first kind of media campaign, which utilised all the period's information vectors. This is from In Defence of Witches by Mona Chollett. Books for those who could read, sermons for all the rest, and for all great quantities of visual representations. The witch was shown again and again, vanquished by their peers, by their communities, popping up in all guises, and as crafty and evolving as Satan himself. It was an accusation for which everyone was familiar and nobody was safe. And unfortunately, it was only going to get worse. 
1542, England, Parliament passed the Witchcraft Act, which defined witchcraft as a crime punishable by death, enshrining these popular ideas of the Malaeus Maleficarum into law. Concurrently in France, liberties of women in particular were systematically being eroded, with the emotionally intense idea of the witch as cannibal baby murderers, borrowing from earlier folklore more similar to vampire than witch, being used to target more and more legislation against women's reproductive health and freedom in the guise of protecting the children. Cunning women and midwives were uniquely vulnerable to this abuse of power, targeted against women, and hugely susceptible to be accused of witchcraft. Again, to quote in defence of witches, in France, a law issued in 1556 obliged all pregnant women to declare their pregnancy and to ensure a witness at their birth. And this was, of course, in an attempt to save the children from their potentially murderous mothers. Now, English witch hunting reached its most furious peak in the 1580s, when it was estimated that witch trials made up around 13% of criminal hearings, although at this point, acquittals were thankfully fairly common. Now, one of the trials we have the most detailed surviving records of was the trial of Ursula Kemp, although the untrustworthiness of said records is pretty paramount. Nevertheless, whether they represent the objective truth of what happened in this trial, or simply the prevailing sentiment, they are still useful and still interesting. So in early 1582, Justice of the Peace Brian Darcy of St. Ozyth, Essex, pursued midwife and cunning woman Ursula Kemp under the 1563 anti-witchcraft statute and had her hanged in Chelmsford for her crimes. The village of St. Ozyth was a small but poor community where bartering and begging were common. Everyone knew each other and grudges were long-standing. Many of the accusations levelled against Kemp involved begging and charity in some way, often her asking charity of others, them refusing, and presumably being cursed for it. But yet other accusations involve being refused payment for the work she has done for others, an income stream upon which she was totally dependent. The community was also, due to its relatively scant wealth, more susceptible to disease and famine, and less resilient to crop and livestock failure. Infant mortality was high, and in general, the community was under the same kinds of indiscriminate pressures that may have led others down the path of accusations. It was, after all, easier than living with the alternative, that there was no reason for their suffering, or that it was all part of God's plan for them. Both options would leave these people powerless, but seeking out and punishing someone believed to be responsible could help improve things, potentially. And Ursula's position as slightly out of step with the rest of the community made her an easy target for this kind of compulsion. Ursula herself was poor and not particularly well-liked. After a string of sickness and tragedies made people believe that the woman who had up until now been turned to to heal the sick may have been cursing her neighbours. 
Many of these accusations came from her previous friend, Grace Thurlow, who suffered a string of personal tragedies and sought someone to blame for them. Grace had requested Ursula's assistance as a cunning woman to care for her son Davy when he became sick. And when her medicine worked temporarily, this was used later as evidence that Ursula had bewitched him. So she was also accused of causing the death of Grace's child, Joan, who, after the two fell out with each other over nursing duties of the child, fell from her crib and broke her neck. One of Kemp's familiars, it is said, travelled from the house and induced the child to fall to their death. So Ursula had a number of animals and pets and just livestock part of her life, and all of these were used as evidence against her. So a cat, a dog, there's a goat... Just being near her were counted as her familiars and used to condemn her. Now Grace herself was later taken lame, but Ursula allegedly promised to show her how she may unwitch herself from this presumed curse of lameness. She asked for 12 pence in payment for this help, to which Grace initially agreed. She is cured of her lameness until the point Ursula asks for her payment and Grace refuses. Consequently, Grace is taken lame again, this time permanently. Grace herself says that she simply had no money to pay Ursula and was not withholding it maliciously. Nevertheless, she believed Ursula bewitched her for it. It was her belief that all three personal tragedies in her life had a common cause and she complained to her local magistrate for help in getting justice. Now, there are other charges against Ursula, mostly on the theme of a spiteful bewitching due to a debt not paid. But even with Grace's supposed statement, oftentimes a payment requested is money or food or everyday items. It reflects a community whose lives were interconnected and who relied on each other for the necessities and their denial oftentimes being the difference between life and death and just pure survival. But the nail in the coffin was probably the statement given by Ursula's son Thomas, naming and describing the four animal familiars known to come and go from Ursula's house. I'm going to give them their names because they're all great. Tiffin, Titty, Pigeon and Jack. He also described how they would drink her blood as part of their unnatural pact, and hence her body was examined for evidence of such witch's teat. Ursula herself paints her life as one permeated with witchcraft, so she had learned the process to cure lameness, she says, by learning from another skilled female healer, and had followed the process to cure herself and later grace. I should stress at this point, all that we know of the statements of those involved are most likely mediated through Darcy's hand. It was said as well that her confession was confessed to him in private and only to him, and on the promise by her examiner that a confession would bring leniency, she detailed how and why her familiars acted their magic in the village, and that she had sent them to punish those who wronged her, but crucially not done any of these deeds herself, more spoken her wishes to the familiars and they had gone out and done it for them. So there are striking similarities between her trial and later ones. The reliance on the baseless accusation of rivals and enemies, 
the use of children as witnesses against her, her familiars being used as evidence for her powers and used also as an explanation for the lack of physical evidence being found of her committing the crimes, search on her body for the witch's teat, her encouraged confession, after all she was promised leniency for her to confess. These are all hallmarks of later trials that would be adopted and carried forward. And ironically enough, the 1584 Reginald Scott penned the discovery of witchcraft, where it was explicitly critical of the injustices and butchering of judicial process in this trial, may have brought these aspects of the trial to the public eye and assisted in them becoming mainstays of the trial's structure. To quote the Penguin Book of Witches, Reginald Scott was one of the strongest sceptical voices to emerge in opposition to the common attitudes towards witches and witchcraft in early modern England. The reason for Reginald Scott's scepticism was simple. The powers of witches, he says, the power to kill, inflict illness, blight crops, control the elements in some cases, were all powers attributed only to God. Therefore, believing witches as capable of them was a failure of faith and just simply incorrect. Scott was also one of the first to recognise the accused's marginalised status in society and their relative powerlessness, and that a true test of Christian faith, in his opinion, would be to show these individuals charity and mercy. So for Scott, believing in witchcraft in effect was an easy way out, and to quote his discovery of witchcraft, The fables of witchcraft have taken so fast a hold in the heart of man that few or none can nowadays with patience endure the hand and correction of God. For if any adversity, grief or sickness, or loss of children, corn, cattle or liberty happen unto them, by and by they exclaim upon witches. And this is a description more or less exactly of the kind of behaviour which led to the murder of Ursula Kemp. Tragedy befalls members of their community, and unable to truly process what has happened to them, they find it easier and simpler to simply blame Ursula. He also described in his book Discovery of Witchcraft another accused woman, the Rochester lady Margaret Simons, in 1581. In Scott's view, it was the vicar of the local parish, John Ferrell, who was most instrumental in her trial, being envious of the woman and insecure in his own faith. She was accused of causing the illness of a boy who had threatened her and her dog with a knife for barking at him. The vicar, visiting the sick child, linked the sickness with this relatively minor incident and declared him bewitched. The vicar also ascribed to her such broad powers as causing his voice to fail while reading at church a hoarseness that even his neighbours pointed out was more likely due to disease than curse. If a witch's powers are thought to be so broad, there is no escape from condemnation by the accused, says Scott. For the name of a witch is so odious and her power so feared among the common people, that if the honestest body living chance to be arraigned thereupon, she shall hardly escape condemnation. So Scott did point out the majority amongst the ranks of those condemned to be older women, often in failing health, superstitious, 
perhaps more guarded and more sullen than some of their peers. He recognised as well that there was also a certain kind of person in which the persuasion of their own guilt is more likely to occur, an act of bringing power to the powerless, having their will done, but also the kind of people that might be used to the scorn of their neighbours, used to being marginalised and people being suspicious of them. Older widows, for instance, often relied on the charity of others and the fruits of various common lands at this time for the basics of survival, both of which were transitory and unreliable. Therefore, Scott could see the utility in the dream of this pact with the devil, that all one's material wants could be fulfilled. But there remains the hanging question. If these women truly were in league with the devil, in what way did they actually benefit from it? So beginning in the early 1600s, enclosure and the privatisation of previous common grounds upon which these lower class women relied on provided another impetus for their marginalisation and destruction, this time an economic one. But this was far from the only reason. The overlap between the witch trials and the struggle for consolidation of power was so intertwined as to be almost indivisible. After all, around the same time, work on the King James Bible, the translation which brought us the verse, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, imposed upon the text a cultural idea and anxiety of the time, the threat of the witch and the appropriate method by which to remove them. With a keen personal interest in demonology and magic himself, James made it a part of his ruling style, the rooting out of Maleficia. Building upon the earlier 1542 Witchcraft Act, the 1562 and 1602 Acts transferred the trial of witches from the church to the ordinary courts. This was no longer just a religious threat, but a wider social one, and opened up to more courts, local and central, to try more and more people. The resulting Pendle Witch Trials of 1612 England were one of the best recorded and most famous witch trials of the 17th century. Taking place in Lancashire, England, 12 people were accused of the murder of 10 others by use of witchcraft. They formed part of a series of trials which would come to be known as the Lancashire Witch Trials. 10 were to be executed in these trials in total, 9 women and 1 man making them somewhat notable in England, which had suffered relatively few executions for witchcraft at only a few hundred by this point, which, although a a startling figure compared to some countries, was relatively few. Now, most of those involved in the Pendle witch trials were of two competing families or associated with said families. Traditional healers by trade, they were naturally susceptible to the accusation of witchcraft, for their medicine either working too well, not at all, apparently transferring disease from one person to another, you name it. Some have also suggested that a number of the accusations came from the competing families who were struggling to subsist on their trades in a less than wealthy society. The accusations in this trial are linked to old rivalries, long-held debts, the refusal of sale and purchase of small items, minor thefts, the kind of small incident drunk together over decades to create the impression of both families blighting one another with trivial, by today's eyes, inconveniences, 
but say something about the sheer struggle for survival of many of those involved here. The grievances would have perhaps fizzled out and caught no attention if it weren't for the meeting at Malkin Tower, organised by Elizabeth Device and attended by many of the accused. A sheep was stolen from a neighbour in order to feed the party in their clandestine meeting. Now, the Lancashire area was staunchly Catholic for the most part at this time, and the practice of mass and the like had to go underground during the Protestant Reformation. Therefore, the area was under suspicion for heresy and the intermingled idea of the witch's Sabbath, this clandestine meeting of heretical belief and practice where those involved would meet with Satan himself. And this meeting at Malkin Tower seemed to catch them red-handed in such clandestine meeting. Now, during their trial for witchcraft, some involved believed their charges levelled against them and labelled themselves witches, being, of course, cunning folk and magical practitioners by trade. Now, the prosecutor was a local magistrate, Roger Noel, who collated and analysed the accusations against the families. Key witnesses to the prosecution would be Janet Device, aged only nine. But under King James I urging in his Daemonology, a pamphlet on the urgent and necessary hunting down of witches, some of the rigours of the judicial system needed to be relaxed here, hence the testimony of a young and impressionable child was key once again. Janet would not only help in identifying those who had attended the Malkin Tower meeting, but also gave evidence against her mother, brother and sister. Nine of the accused, Alison Device, Elizabeth Device, James Device, Anne Whittle, Anne Redfern, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bolcock and Jane Bolcock were found guilty during the two-day trial and hanged at Gallows Hill on the 20th of August 1612. Elizabeth Southerns died in custody an unfortunately common occurrence that obscures quite a lot of the official death statistics on this topic. Only one of the accused, Alice Gray, was found not guilty. Their confessions were extracted under lengthy torture and at the promise of leniency which was not to be granted. And they died begging for God's forgiveness, underlining the fact that they were not the heretics that they said they were to be. They were accused of turning beer sour, having telltale facial tics, which were presumed to be a key indicator of a witch, consulting with familiars um, and asking their familiars for assistance in murders, making clay figures of their murder victims, and oftentimes the only witness to these obscure bits of evidence being their own children. And most damning of all was their attendance of said meeting at Malkin Tower, which they explained as a simple Good Friday celebration involving a feast. But whereas England was relatively untouched by witch trials, Germany was the exact opposite at this time, with an estimated 40% of all witch executions taking place in Germany alone. Of these, the Bamberg witch trials, 1626 to 1631, were one of the largest systematic witch trials in Europe, in which of the thousand people convicted, 900 were burned at the stake. This was a trial which did not discriminate, with everyone, all ages, classes and genders accused and executed. 
Now this strangely goes some way to undo some of this process we were exploring whereby witchcraft was transformed into the pursuit of women, drawing in all kinds of local legend to strengthen the case. A lot of these folkloric elements were German in origin as well, but the Bamberg witch trial just spread to include and accuse just everyone. Now it began in 1626 when a large group of angry peasants came together to petition local authorities to find the witches responsible for putting a blight on their crops. So the Prince Bishop of Bamberg from 1623 to 1633, known as the Hexenbrenner or Witchburner, quickly arrested a woman who later confessed to said blight on the crops and started off a process by which one, this kind of mass petition seemed to get results and two, natural disasters could be pinned upon a single confessing victim. Now this somewhat widened the scope of witches' powers in comparison to what we've discussed so far and seems to show a society urging for this kind of scapegoat to be found rather than a local seat of power or individual abusing and cementing their own power by degrading and executing others. But this victim would not be the only victim, and many others were encouraged by torture to confess to what disasters they had caused. They were also motivated, as with the Valais and Lancashire trials, to give over the names of their co-conspirators, those with whom they'd met at the Witches' Sabbath, and they did so in droves. This exponential growth in the ranks of those accused meant that just a year later, an entire building or witch house was to be built to house the accused. They were to be subject to torture, thumbscrews, vices, strapado, and all manner of sexual and psychological abuse. Now, strapado, if you don't know, is a form of torture where the victim has their hands bound and then they are suspended by their bound hands behind their back. Often weights are added to pull the arms up as the body is pulled down, or the rope would be jerked sharply away from the body. Needless to say, it's excruciating and under pain of said torture. The accusers had no lack of new victims to keep these trials going, and therefore kind of justify the ongoing trials because they seem to be getting results. Now, the witch-hunting fury came to an end in Bamberg when the husband of an accused woman, Dorothea Flock, raised the alarm and the emperor intervened, stripping the prince bishop of his title. By then, however, he was luxuriously rich from seized land and goods confiscated from the accused. As the situation of the Lancashire witches feeding into this new enclosure legislation and helping it along, there was more motivation to the accusations than just venting as a society and potentially getting rid of some of the less liked in their communities. There was power and money and land to be grabbed from this widespread accusation. As time went on, those in charge of the trials became more and more aware of the effect of consolidating power that the trials could bring to a community. Some scholars of the subject, interpreting them from a feminist viewpoint, point out just how much legislation stemmed from or was supported by the trials and the ideas circulated by the trials. Ideas of the moral frailty of women, their susceptibility to corruption, the already precarious social position of lone or widowed women, 
weakened by the association that their looks and their very way of life was tantamount to witchcraft. Systematically, the powerless or those living outside of society and therefore outside of direct control were demonised further and further. Now, witchcraft today has been reappropriated by feminist groups, among others, for its potent symbolic nature as antithetical to the prevailing machinations of power. After all, as we've seen, witchcraft is fluid, defying explanation and by definition impossible to prove or disprove. And as summarised in the Penguin Book of Witches, witchcraft is less a set of defined practices than a representation of the oppositional, as the intentional thwarting of the machinery of power, whether that power lies with the church, with the king, or with the dominant cultural group. So this begs the question, why did these trials come to an end in Europe? So they clearly served a host of social needs. They helped those in power to enact their control over others and strengthen their position while weakening those existing beyond these structures. Their victims were often powerless to defend themselves, and the communities always created new environments in which any number of personal disasters could be blamed on any imagined slight. Again to quote, Prosecution of witchcraft allowed for the consolidation of power and the enforcement of religious and social norms. For common people, belief in witchcraft explained away quotidian unfairness and misfortune. These two circles of belief intersected in the bodies of individuals, usually women, who were out of step with their society. So why did this become less useful? If there was all of this social use to it, why did it end? So in the mid-17th century, scepticism was reaching its peak over the question of how legal these trials were with many coming to the conclusion that the trials, even under their own judgment, were miscarriages of justice and acts of widespread murder. Many scholars also point to the increased social stability and generally improved standard of living of having the twofold effect of local powers feeling less need to consolidate their power in this violent way and individuals feeling less need to take out their desires for revenge on their peers. What's more, the more sceptical out there will point out that these instruments of control never really went away. More, they were enshrined into law. So the very way in which societies can dehumanise threats to society and enshrine into law the practice by which they can be unlawfully destroyed as non-human they still exist today in our anti-terrorism laws, for example. What's more, the systematic removal of rights and freedoms from women was a process which moved from the sham trial to social movement. The immediate knock-on effect from the end of the trials did not result in a better environment for the women involved, but more a suspicion of those like them. After all, the weight of all these public confessions was still within the public consciousness. Many women had seen other women like them confess to being in league with the devil and being hanged for it. This image of women as someone to be suspicious of as potentially harbouring all of these ill feelings and working in the shadow to potentially harm you 
these ideas didn't really go anywhere. More, there is the argument that they may have set back sort of gender equality for hundreds of years. Like we may still be dealing with the fallout of these witch trials, because the struggle to maintain women's rights continues to this day, with people around the globe fighting to protect their reproductive rights and social freedoms sometimes still against the jury of their peers. As Mona Chollett puts it succinctly in In Defense of Witches, when talking of some of the more specific laws introduced since the trials to demonise the kind of people accused, the witch hunts had by then fulfilled their function. There was no further need to burn women alleged to be witches. Now the law enabled the curtailment of all women's independence. So I hope you'll catch me next week where we take a brief look at the witch trials in America. So how was it that witch fervour bubbled up in such a violent way when it had largely died out in Europe? What particular set of circumstances leads whole communities down the same path and to the same horrific conclusions with the memory of exactly how this has played out in Europe? So we will be attempting then to answer the question from the Penguin Book of Witches. How can the English colonists who settled North America, who were relatively literate compared to their European cousins, who were reasonably thoughtful and self-examining, who lived in tightly interconnected communities dependent on collective effort for success, have believed in witches? So it's going to be another depressing one, but I can't cover the witch trials or the history of witches in general without touching on some of the most visible cultural symbols of the hunts, namely the Salem witch trials and some of the influential literature and accounts based on or influenced by them. But we will finish up after that by exploring the new feminist approaches to witches and witchcraft and the ways in which the witch has been reappropriated and the good that has been done by witches and in service of the image of the witch so it's not all bad there is some hope that by being aware of these events we can use them to make life better for everyone and by being aware of these processes at work we can avoid it in ourselves but it is a weird cognitive dissonance how flippantly we throw around the phrase witch hunts when you Think of the cruelty and the very systematic aggression that those words describe. It's something that I keep thinking about and I keep coming back to and we will talk a little bit more about that next week. In the meantime though, you can find me wherever you like to find your podcasts and you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast and search Weird Horizon Podcast on YouTube for episodes there. I'm still working on it. I have slowed down a bit, but I'm going to keep going and I'll keep doing this as long as people will have me. Honestly, the subject's just been quite heavy and it takes a lot out of you (laughs) just reading for hours and hours about just women like you being murdered um, for no reason, literally no reason a lot of the time other than hatred. It takes out of you, so I think... After this, like I said, I'm going to bookend it with some interesting, nice stuff about modern witchcraft, but then I'm going to find something light, or I'm going to attempt to, (laughs) going to choose something silly to talk about for a few weeks, so 
In the meantime, stay spooky, my friends. Much love, as always. For now, bye.